People of the world, hello and welcome to the Brothers Talk with your hosts, Rod, Scott, and Norm, where our purpose is a simple one. Tune into our weekly podcast each Friday, wherever you listen to your favorite programs or on this website to hear us, three black, unfiltered African-American men with no strings attached, giving voice as the most feared, most misunderstood, and most rarely heard from segment of the population on topics of interest to us for education, enlightenment, and entertainment. To reach us with your comments, questions, and suggestions, we're at The Brothers Talk on Twitter, The Brothers Talk on Instagram, the Facebook group of the same name, and if you care to share in more detail, hit us up at the email address, thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. Also, stay tuned for details about our upcoming news and perspective show on Millennium TV's M24 streaming news station. We're glad to have you aboard for this week's edition of the podcast, and thank you all for your time, your comments, and for spreading the word about what we're doing in keeping the emphasis on Black economic empowerment, especially as the pandemic continues to wreak havoc in our communities, both health and business-wise. And now our co-hosts, Scott and Norm. Hey, family. I hope that you had a blessed and relaxing Thanksgiving holiday and the weekend. I hope that you're out there being smart and safe. Like Ross said, make sure that you continue to buy black because this pandemic is wreaking havoc on the economy. And we know the damage that it's doing to uh, to black folks and their businesses. So go out there and support black businesses. And most of all, and most importantly, stay safe. And uh, brothers and sisters, our businesses are failing at an alarming rate because of this virus. So we need even more help more than ever. So please, as Scott and Rod said, you know, support our community. Black on Black Love. That's all we got. Well, we're honored to have a living legend on this week's show. And anyone who knows me and to those who don't, I'm not one to use that term lightly. Our guest this week is a lifelong anti-racism champion, Dr. Walt Palmer of the W.D. Palmer Foundation. Dr. Palmer has such an extensive professional biography beyond just his work against racism that even as I scratch the surface, there's more than enough for several lifetimes. But here's a sample. Born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, but moved to Philadelphia at an early age, matriculated at Penn, Temple, Cheney State, studying cardiopulmonary care, secondary education, business administration, radio and TV production, and earning his JD from Howard. Became a community activist founding the W.D. Palmer Foundation as a family foundation and creating the Black People's University of Philadelphia Freedom School while also working as a surgical attendant and continuing his education studying respiratory therapy. If that wasn't enough, Dr. Palmer was not only a world-class athlete continuing to train and run events into his 70s, but he's also a musician and author. And just for good measure, Dr. Palmer scored a coup in 1980 by buying a $52 million steel mill in Chicago. Dr. Walter D. Palmer is a professor that continues to lecture in the UPenn system and has a personal relationship with the family of the soon-to-be 46th President Joe Biden, which he can share more details about. We're honored to have you here, sir, and please greet our listeners with anything else you'd care to share. Thank you uh, so much, Uh, Chester. Family, thank you so much for, uh, Norm, uh, allowing me to be on your show. I was excited once I had a chance to to meet Rod um, uh, through a mutual friend that we have. And uh, I looked forward to being on being on this show. My journey started, as you said, Rod, way back when, 1955. At that point in time, I think I was about maybe 19 years old, 18, 19 years old, when I set up the Black People's University of Philadelphia. And I tell folks all the time, I, I grew up in poverty, 
and I, I, I don't say that uh, from trying to belittle it or um, be ashamed of it or to run away from it. And what I oftentimes tell people, all that I am, I owe to the poor. Um, my great-grandmother, who I knew, was a former slave, uh, who I loved dearly. Uh, my grandmother was a hard worker, and neither of them were educated. My grandfather was not educated. He ran a little speakeasy in Atlantic City. And my mother uh, dropped out of school at eighth grade or so to help her, her father, my grandfather, run his little speakeasy, uh, which was a way the underground economy that most blacks had to uh, deal with um, all during the early development um, after the um, the reconstruction period of the 1860s on, in the term before the turn of the century. So I, I, I say it humbly, right? And so my my compassion, my love, uh, my commitment for my biological family is, I think, was one of the major driving forces. Seeing my father have to work hard to try to raise money to feed his family, family of eight of us in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Seeing my mother do odd jobs, seeing the division uh, in the town between white people living on one side of the town and black people living on the other side, uh, having my five sisters be separated uh, because all of us were, were living in one small two-story house with my great-grandmother, my grandfather, my grandmother, my aunt, her two children, my mother, my father, and our growing family. And it only took a certain period of time before my father realized that uh, it was a failing proposition to stay um, in, in Atlantic City. So he moved to Philadelphia and was able to get my stepsister to allow him to uh, live in the back of her beauty shop. And she loved my dad, her, her, our dad, so much uh, that she moved out and let him have the two rooms in the back of her beauty shop. And that's how I became a transplant. Uh, at the age of six or seven years old uh, in Philadelphia from Atlantic City. My father would die before um, he had a chance to bring all my five sisters back into the family, into the fold. And that would be left up to me as a 12-year-old boy to become the man of the house to try to help my beloved mother bring our family together. My father, and this is a shout-out to all of you men listening, my father died from cancer, cancer of the prostate. At that point in time, back in the 1940s, he died in 1947, uh, there was little much known about the cancer prostate. And so, therefore, it, it stayed inside of his body for a number of years, at least four years before they detected it. And the, and the cancer ate up his, all his organs. That's why it's so important when we look at the disparities that black people face. Uh, they're, they're faced in every, every angle, health care, education, employment, business, uh, you name it. So we really have to be mindful that no one should die from cancer of the prostate. That is preventable, and and it, it, it means watching, monitoring, and doing and being proactive. And I, I myself, I had it. My brother Terry next to me, he died from it. He was he had a stroke at age 37, but before he hit his 60th birthday or so, he died from cancer of the prostate. Uh, two years ago, my one of my youngest brothers, David. Uh, he decided that he was going to try to uh, uh, treat the cancer of his prostate and refused uh, medical treatment. So it ravaged his body. And when he wanted to have treatment, it was too late. He allowed it to get advanced stage. My oldest son, just not more than a month or so ago, had surgical removal for cancer of the prostate. My brother, Tommy, who's uh, in Florida, he had it 
my brother Lawrence, who was the youngest one of the eight first eight children, he had cancer of prostate. And I told you I had cancer of prostate uh, 25 years ago. And the treatments that I got uh, maybe were too aggressive. And some of the radiation eventually, 25 years later, moved towards my bladder. And so now I'm being treated for cancer of the bladder. But all is hopeful. All these stories that we share, Rod, I'm sure you and all you guys share, uh, are not to be to belabor people and, and, and push you down, but to really motivate you and push you up. Because everything we do is based on time. Uh, and we have a certain amount of time to live, and, and, and death is a certain event that's going to happen. We just don't know when. And so what's hopeful is the fact that as long as you're breathing, you're able to do something to make a difference. And so by the time I was in my teens, my early teens, uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, uh, I, I was very observant and I started to learn and, and wanted to, to do more. I wanted to make life better for the people who made life good for me. And, uh, I started the Black People's University and the Palmer Foundation in 1955. And this predated, uh, Dr. King, it predates Malcolm, it predates Jesse, all these guys, all of which I will come to, to know and, and work with and all of us have a, have a brotherhood very much like the one you guys have. And so, the Black People University's whole thing was to really try to raise a level of consciousness for black people and the importance of black people in world history. And so I would, I was an artist and I got some of my friends who were artists and we would draw pictures of black people in history. We followed Joel A. Rogers, who never got much credit for the work he had done as a historian. And we followed, I followed G. Carter Woodson, the father of, of Black History Month, was with him, it was Black History Week. And, and then it became uh, a month later on. And so we would stand on street corners and we'd be extolling the, the virtues and the history and the culture of Africa and African civilizations and that of the, the people in the diaspora, as well as you know, all across America, et cetera. Because we believe that it was, it was important because it, it helped to give us a sense of pride and dignity. And one of the great problems that, that are faced, that we face today with our young people is even little or no self-esteem. And that self-esteem has been killed because of the idea that uh, whiteness being greatness and blackness being a disadvantage. And so the way to, the way to combat that is with this abiding love of, of oneself and one's family and French or, uh, uh, culture and civilization. And so Black Blackfish University went, became the, the turning, the learning tool, the teaching tool for the Palmer Foundation, which was a repository of gathering the data and the information. And we stayed on that journey between 1955 until until present day. And along the way, I was blessed or, or not blessed, depending on how you look at it, to have participated in just tens of of hundreds of uh, confrontations and and uh, organizations and efforts to try to make make a difference. And so I learned young, I learned early, and the skills that I acquired, I went to school not to get a job, I went to school to try to get information to come back to Black People University to teach uh, the people. And so that became the template. Uh, There's a dear friend of mine, a filmmaker, they're trying to do uh, a story of the making of a social change agent using myself as uh, as a profile of all the things I went through in order to become a social change agent for almost 70 years. And Rod, I'll stop there and, and, and pause for a minute to, to see what interaction you and, and the team have. Well, Dr. Palmer, that is really great information. I mean, you've given us such a 
a, a full plate to start to digest. So basically, because you touched on uh, Malcolm and Martin and Carter Woodson and people like that. So as the uh, living library, what have you seen that's changed within our people from the years of seeing the struggle led against racism by people like Du Bois and Garvey to Martin and Malcolm to the current day? What what do you have you noted that is different in the struggle? Well, one of the things that uh, in 1955, it's hard for people to picture what that was like. Philadelphia at the time was the third largest city in, in, in all the United States and had the second or third largest uh, public school system, et cetera. So Philadelphia had always had a significant number of blacks that lived in Philadelphia coming to Philadelphia as early as when William Penn had founded uh, Pennsylvania and was strong in the Quaker. The Quaker movement brought a lot of blacks into Philadelphia. Uh, notwithstanding that, in the 1950s, uh, black people were called colored or Negro, and black people didn't want to be called anything other than colored or Negro. And even though there were people who were quietly fighting, and some not as, as outspoken as O.B. Caddo, who gave his life uh, for the cause, the resistance came from both the middle-class blacks as well as whites when we started pushing the, the notion of black people. And I knew exactly what I was doing as an 18, 19 year older when I created the Black People's University Freedom School. I, I, first of all, I knew that using that term black would be a, a shocker, right? And, and, and there'd be resistance. I knew using the word university, right? Who, how, how can you be so bodacious? How could you as a black person or black boy be so bodacious to use the two terms in the same sentence? Black People's University, okay? And then put it in the cradle of, of the democracy, the cradle of the United States, Philadelphia. Black People's University of Philadelphia. So how God has really helped me along the way, because I, was, I was, wasn't totally gifted in, in terms of brain power, but somehow wisdom as a result of me, my interaction with the elders and the older people and being so committed towards trying to learn from the elders and uh, having the courage to do what they couldn't do, say what they might not say, say what they'd be afraid to say. And I was a young kid growing up in Atlantic City. I didn't have all this. I mean, I had the desire to learn, I had the curiosity, but I didn't have the fight until I get into Philadelphia. And Philadelphia totally transformed me because what Philadelphia did was from this quiet kid, uh, you know, unsuspecting, nonviolent, it, within a short period of time between the time I'm seven, eight years old, and the time my father dies at 12, I, I couldn't fight, but I had to learn how to fight. And I had to protect my mother, and I had to protect my five sisters, and I had to protect my, my younger brothers. And um, then I had my, my stepfather came into our lives, and uh, my mom and he had five more children. One died at birth, so they had 12 children, two adults living in two rooms on welfare. And so, I, you know, we are targets. And so, I mean, I took a lot of a lot of beatings before I started dishing them out, right? And then what happens? I became one of the leaders in the community. And uh, by the time I was 14, 15 years old, I mean, I was considered to be like a warlord, protecting the neighborhood, protecting the community. What I learned was you could use that title for good, or you could use it for bad. And I chose to use it for good. I was in opposition to drugs. I was in opposition to um, gang conflict. I, I led the gangs and I, 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 because I was strong and because I, I, I made the people who lived in my, my neighborhood strong and made them made people fearful of them, 
I could use that leverage to try to stop people from uh, having these gang wars and these gang fights. And I'll never forget one occasion I had all the leaders from all the different gangs across the city of Philadelphia meet in my my sister's beauty parlor up front and would live in the back. And uh, all these gangsters were teenagers in high school. Uh, and my mother went through, and I heard my mother record saying to my sister, oh, my God, isn't that nice? Walter has all his friends, and they're so nice, and they're so polite. They're such wonderful kids. <laughs> my mom only knew who was sitting in her room, right? But we were there for good work, doing doing some good work. And for any of you young people out there who listen to this, this message, I mean, you don't have to uh, take your strength and your courage, right, and, and, and go south. I mean, you can use it for good. And so what I did was I, I did that. And by the time I was 12 years old, I got my first arrest at 12 years old for burglary, grand theft, grand larceny, right? And every six months or so, I was going to jail for fighting or disorderly conduct. And I was all, I never got into a fight for myself. I was always fighting for somebody else, right? And um, I was stabbed at least four times in these fights, uh, long growing up in the neighborhood, trying hard to protect folks. I was shot before I got to high school and, and a drive-by, right? And I was stabbed in high school in a fight and almost had my artery severed with a switchblade in my in my arm, right? But I, I, I just never relented. I never retreated. I, I mean, I, I, I was on the right side. And, and to, to address your question, what I felt, I felt so strongly about black people. I thought that black people were the chosen people. I thought that we were God's people. I thought that we were here for a purpose as I unearthed all these stories and these portraits and these paintings. And I stand on the street corners on a, on a milk crate trying to extol who we were as a people, right? Uh, I just believe that. And what I've come to realize over time, between the 1950s and 1960s, we had to break through um, getting people to not be in opposition so much to, to somebody like myself. But even if you couldn't publicly embrace me, at least try to support me behind closed doors, right? And little by little, folks became stronger, and they started having, they started proclaiming, you know, you started who they were, black teachers. Black lawyers, black doctors, black engineers, right? Black media. So they they saw me as somebody who was champion of them, irrespective of their class status. I mean, I didn't hold it against them that they were doing better. I hope all I wanted them to do was to do better and share it with uh, with the people who are less fortunate, right? They didn't have to be like me, go to jail all the time and fight. I went to jail when I was in jail, even in juvenile jails. I mean, I fought to protect the, the weaker, the people who were weaker in the in the prison system. Uh, later on, I went to the civil rights movement. I got locked up a lot, as much as I did before. And I realized going to jail wasn't a bad thing. It all depended on what you went to jail for, right? Fighting wasn't a bad thing. It all depends on what you're fighting for. Uh, I used to make sure that the young girls in the neighborhood and the elderly were protected. You could not disrespect elderly people and young girls and women in my neighborhood. And not only that, most of the guys that grew up in the neighborhood, they also had the same feeling. So it came from, it came natural that we, we wanted to protect and respect the elderly, the women, the weak, the people who aren't as strong as, as some of us were, right? And we turn all these things which would normally be a negative into a positive. And so Black People's University seized upon that and use that, incorporated that in, in part of our training. So our training from the from the 1950s to this day was about leadership. Everybody had to be a leader. 
from preschool to high school to college, right? And everybody had to be about each one, each one, each one, teach one, right? And the whole everybody lifting up up one another, you know, making life a better place. So then comes the 60s and everybody's into it and they're into black power and they're into the diaspora, they're into Afrocentrism, uh, which we help. I mean, I, I shut down so many different colleges and, and demonstrated and showed the students, black and white students, how to demonstrate and pick it and, and take these colleges over and wind up getting black studies in a lot, a lot of the colleges, Temple University, University of Pennsylvania, Community College, I mean, almost every school in the city of Philadelphia, uh, we led the fight to make sure that, that black history would be in all these schools, right? And we started setting up black student unions and black student leagues in, in all the schools. And there was a real fervor. There was a real uh, desire. I mean, the young people were pumped up. They were they were ecstatic. They were proud. The, the gang wars were coming down, uh, and and black pride was coming up. And so, by 1967, I'd established quite a, a network uh, all across the entire city: black ministers and teachers and lawyers and doctors and laymen and gang leaders, et cetera. And I was able to use that network. To, to run a number of different uh, events. So the, the Black Power Conference came to me and asked me to, to set up the National Black Power Conference, the second one in uh, 1968, and, and I did. And Panthers came and asked me to set up the, their first national, international, congressional convention in Philadelphia, and I did. And the anti-war people asked me to do the same thing, and I helped organize an effort, uh, which eventually we wound up having about 500,000 people march on the United Nations against the war. And so I became the go-to person for uh, much of this stuff. But I always make it clear to people, I could not have done it without other people. Know them, know me. And every time people have tried hard to give me all the accolades, I make it very clear, I, I rise on the backs of others before me. And all the work that I do and to this day, uh, it's only done because um, others have helped. And that's a wrap for part one of our three-part conversation with Dr. Palmer. And you definitely won't want to miss what he has to say about his relationship with the Biden family in part two, as well as his national campaign to have racism declared a health crisis in part three. You can learn more about Dr. Palmer and the fascinating works that he's done and is still doing by checking out his website at thewdpalmerfoundation.org. That's thewdpalmerfoundation.org. In our positive Black business segment, our ongoing emphasis on Black socioeconomic empowerment is remembering that the failure rate of Black businesses during the COVID-19 pandemic is 41% compared to white businesses at 17%. And let's be real, as with most things Black, that number is probably significantly undercounted. So let's do our best to support Black businesses with our dollars as well as our lips. Remember that Black business failures are failures for our community because those businesses employ Black people. And please don't be so hasty to go out and enrich other ethnic groups just because you believe you're saving a few dollars. Those extra dollars staying in our communities mean that someone from our community remains employed and that perhaps one of our kids receives the powerful message of getting his or her first job from someone who looks just like them. Those Black dollars remaining in Black communities means an investment in our future. And while you're at it, let's challenge those friends from those other ethnic groups who claim to be woke to patronize black businesses as well. Give them some suggestions if they need it, but let's all search out black businesses in our communities and online during this holiday season. 
Finally, let's not forget those who are facing food and housing insecurity, and this the wealthiest nation on earth. Yes, it remains a national disgrace, but until there's a new model, it's up to those of us who can to help out our brothers and sisters without. So once again, we lift up the godly work being carried out by Chef Dion Kakuda and his nonprofit organization, Disabled Combat Veterans Youth Program, who are feeding thousands of families each week with nothing more than donations and volunteer labor. Check out his website at dcvyp.org. That's D for disabled, C for combat, V for veterans, Y for youth, P for program.org, and give what you can. You'll be blessed that you did. As always, thank you for continuing to help spread the word about the podcast and our Facebook groups, The Brothers Talk, Relaunching Black Wall Street Nationwide, and Hashtag Black Dollars Matter, where we keep the focus on Black socioeconomic empowerment. And you can also follow us at The Brothers Talk on Twitter, The Brothers Talk on Instagram, and the Facebook group of the same name. And as always, feel free to contact us with your show ideas, feedback, questions, and suggestions as well. Send them to thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. Again, our thanks. And during this health crisis, please stay safe, be well, and remember, let's do better today because that's all we really have.